So, we have completed uh, the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, and uh, we are about to start the fifth chapter. So, in order to make sense of um, Arjuna's question, which will start the fifth chapter, and uh, also Sri Krishna's answer, I'd just like to take a look back at the structure of sadhana. What is spiritual practice? What is sadhana in Vedanta? So for to do that, I actually have this, this um, table which I can share with you. I've spoken about this on many occasions, but it's good to take a look at it. We'll see. Take a look, you'll immediately recognize it. I'm going to share the screen here so that you can see. Can you see? Can you yeah. see the... Yes. yes. Um, so, here, right. So, this we have seen earlier. I mentioned it a number of times. What is sadhana in Vedanta and Advaita Vedanta? So, the idea in Advaita Vedanta is that we are Brahman. We are infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. So, obviously, there's no problem there uh, in our real nature. But the moment we are told this, that we are Brahman, our immediate reaction is that uh, I don't know that. I don't feel that. And that seems to be of no use to me at all right now because I've got so many problems. And how is uh, how are my problems solved by um, knowing that, by this being, uh, knowing that I'm Brahman because I don't feel it or experience it. How do I get fulfillment from this? So this, I don't know it. I don't experience it. I, I'm not getting any benefit out of it. This thing, this is called ignorance. This itself, this experience itself is called ignorance. Here, can you see my cursor? This uh, moving, yes. So here is ignorance, ajnana. This ignorance is, is what we experience as, um, one second. Um, Let me see. All sorts of technical problems. Okay. The moment we have, so we have ignorance about our nature as Brahman. And we know the solution for that is knowledge. Not all kinds of knowledge. Knowledge that we are Brahman. And actually, we know it does not mean just reading about it or attending a class but actually intuitive realization. Just like we, at this moment, we feel that we are this body-mind, we should be as confident and as clear that we are Brahman. So this should come. How does this come? So it comes through Jnana Yoga. Um, what is Jnana Yoga? Specifically, it is Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana. Shravana of what? Of the Upanishads and related texts from a qualified teacher, study it systematically. So that is Shravana, studying the Upanishadic knowledge um, with the help of the Bhagavad Gita, with the help of the Brahma Sutras and the Prakarana texts. So systematically learning Vedanta and then reflecting upon it, 
manana so that all doubts are cleared up we have clarity and conviction about it so once we know the teaching and we have clarity and conviction about it then it has to be assimilated till it becomes a living fact for us it is a living fact in fact but uh, why it does not seem so is because of our lack of clarity or lack of uh, insight um, you know i often get the questions when you questions about advaita vedanta they often start with uh, i understand uh, what advaita vedanta is but then dot 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 everything that comes after the dot 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 is actually a consequence of not understanding advaita vedanta if one truly truly understands advaita vedanta that but will not come at all even understands so real understanding real understanding is at the end of this shravana manana niridhyasana it is one has no problem at all so now one may say that it's um, nice that you are saying it but i have been studying advaita vedanta for 30 40 years some say i have been studying it before you were born uh, but it is not working i have so many problems so then uh, in vedanta we say that there is a another layer of problems which is uh, vikshepa so scattered mind the first layer of problems was this ignorant mind so the second layer of problems scattered mind it is unable to grasp the teaching so to make the mind able to grasp the teaching we must solve this problem of scattered mind and the so- solution is focus attention uh, this concentration ekagrata uh, is developed the method is upasana this is where worship and meditation in in ved in vedic terms we don't talk about bhakti or yoga we talk about upasana you know in vedic three terms are there karma upasana gyana karma upasana gyana and the whole of veda can be divided into these three and you sometimes the upasana and the karma parts are clubbed together into one karma um, karma means action upasana means um, worship or meditation and um, a third is gyana means knowledge upanishads are taken as the gyana part and everything else is put under the karma part but the karma part itself has two parts uh, one is the actual physical ritualistic action the other one is the mental uh, you know the imagination and the visualizations which are done uh, so those are called upasanas basically this is what you find in modern meditation techniques in in hinduism which is a combination of bhakti and uh, yoga and pranayama dharana dhyana samadhi and uh, also in many cases associated with the visualization of deities um, so that is this thing it it helps in focusing the mind here also one may claim oh I'm long ago i took mantra diksha i've been practicing meditation but my mind is so disturbed and especially when i practice meditation my mind becomes more disturbed now what is the problem now the third level the third layer of problems is called chitta mala impure mind so we have three three layers of problems ignorant mind scattered mind impure mind this impure mind what is the constituents of this impurity it is a lifelong and maybe many lifetimes of conditioning negativities un, uh, you know the um, desire and uh, and the greed and anger and frustrations all sorts of uh, vasanas which are we have conditioned our mind into and this conditioning manifests itself as raga dvesha strong likes and dislikes pull towards something and aversion towards other things 
and this is how our life goes and this disturbs our mind continuously it does not enable concentration the mind needs to be prepared so what is the preparation at this level impure mind has to be converted into pure mind so this is in sanskrit called chitta shuddhi chitta shuddhi and this is the term we come across again and again in sadhana you'll always hear chitta shuddhi is the thing necessary so this is the first preparation which is done and and one powerful way most powerful way of doing chitta shuddhi is karma yoga i translate it as selfless work but in the gita sense it's a um, it's a wide ranging practice which converts all our um actions both religious and secular sacred and secular into spiritual practice we can do um, religious actions with desire and we can of course do secular actions with desire converting those religious and secular actions into desireless selfless activity that is karma yoga which is krishna has been teaching arjuna so long now look at the this matrix look at this table what is happening here impure mind in sanskrit chitta mala is converted into pure mind in sanskrit chitta shuddhi by the method of karma yoga problem impure mind solution pure mind method uh, karma yoga then with that pure mind we tackle the problem of the uh, scattered mind problem scattered mind solution concentration method is upasana uh, meditation uh, but with with the pure mind and now you have got concentrated mind with the pure and concentrated mind gyana yoga shravana manana niridhyasana gives rise to knowledge um, brahma gyana it is brahmakara vritti which removes the ignorance and we are back where we started that you are brahman it will become clear without any doubt there will be no longer i understand advaita vedanta but that but is removed now it's done so this is the uh, matrix of sadhana in uh, this is the way and remember this is not a um, uh, sequence it only looks like a sequence practically in our life we will do all of them we will come to vedanta class we will pra- try to convert our activities into spiritual activity and daily we will sit for meditation our uh, actions will be converted into karma yoga daily we will meditate and also uh, use vedanta for atma vichara this will go on all right one additional note here swami vivekananda uh, you remember his famous uh, description of spiritual practice what is religion and what is the practice he says uh, each soul is potentially divine and the goal is to manifest the divinity already within us so that is the goal the goal of religion or spirituality ultimate goal is to manifest the divinity within us and there itself a lot can be said very beautifully worded he does not say it is only to know the divinity here it seems what i just said it seems the goal is to know that you are brahman but swami vivekananda says manifest the divinity already within us the manifestation of the divinity will have to be at the level of body mind and speech our thinking should change our speech should change especially our act- action should change knowledge of brahman should transform us into saints into jivan muktas that is understood in advaita vedanta but Uh, swami vivekananda gives emphasis because above all swami vivekananda is very practical so the practical results are stated it is not only um, a paradigm shift i earlier thought i am this little jiva embodied self and here is a real world and some god i have to believe in from this dualistic paradigm i have now gone to 
the advaitic paradigm that is enlightenment aham brahmasmi i am brahman sarvam kalvidam brahma all this is verily brahman this is my realization but what swami vivekananda is saying that not only this after this you are an enlightened person you are brahman but you are living in this body as long as you are living it must manifest those qualities the manifestation of the divinity is in um, selflessness in love for all in fearlessness in strength uh, in absolute peace and serenity and joy all of those things should be manifested um all right but that's a, my point here is different the next sentence he says do it by worship how how will you realize this how will you manifest the divinity so i am vivekananda says do it remember his famous quote do it by worship do it by psychic control do it by philosophy or do it by work by one or more or all of these and be free that is the whole of religion books temples doctrines and churches are secondary details do you remember that so he mentions four yogas there he mentions these things what we are seeing right here these things are mentioned but the way look at the way he mentions it and how he arranges it he says you do it by worship here this one upasana do it by philosophy here gyana yoga do it by work here karma yoga and also uh, he separates raja yoga from this he says do it by psychic control that is patanjali yoga raja yoga and then he says by one or more or all of these and be free and that is the whole of religion books temples doctrines churches secondary details now immediately you will notice something here here there is a clear um, a clear hierarchy in advaitic the paradigm in the table here you can clearly see a hierarchy first at the basic level karma yoga will give you chitta shuddhi remove impurity of the mind then the pure mind will be focused through upasana it will give you concentration and remove scattered the problem of scattered mind then the pure and concentrated mind will be effective in absorbing the teachings of vedanta which will give rise to knowledge and knowledge alone will leave, remove ignorance the removal of ignorance is moksha so what gives moksha not as swami vivekananda says by one or more or all of these not one or more or all of these only gyana yoga gives moksha only gyana yoga removes agyana and that is moksha um even there also swami vivekananda what swami vivekananda says can be fitted in this when he says you know what a traditional commentator would do would say that yes when swami vivekananda is saying by one or more or all of these what he means is uh, in this sequence so karma yoga bhakti yoga all of them are there but in this sequence and this will give you moksha all of them are required in this sequence and will give you moksha in this hierarchy this arrangement preliminary karma yoga higher than this meditation and highest of all gyana yoga and gyana yoga alone will give you moksha because gyana alone can remove agyana ignorance what is the obstacle to moksha no obstacle you are already free you are brahman you are already free where is the obstacle the obstacle is you don't know it that agyana itself has to be removed and that's all the error that we are not free has to be corrected that is the purpose of sadhana in advaita vedanta but that's not what swami vivekananda meant if you say and take it as simple and honest about it what swami vivekananda means is bhakti can give you that manifestation of divinity gyana can give you that manifestation of divinity yoga can give you the manifestation of divinity and karma yoga can give you the manifestation of divinity work philosophy meditation and um, and devotion 
all of them can give you that divinity, that manifestation of divinity by themselves or in combination. And do it in whichever way and attain that moksha and that is the goal of, uh, of spirituality. So you can clearly see a major difference here. And uh, so note that this hierarchy, it is of course correct and it is the traditional Advaitic approach. But that's not the only approach. Advaita Vedanta is not the only Vedanta. Uh, there is Vishishta Advaita, there is Dvaita, there is Dvaita Advaita, there is um, Shuddha Advaita, Achintya Bheda Bhe. These are the main schools of Vedanta. And there are also minor sub-schools. Now, when you come to Ramanuja, for example, he will not accept this. He will reverse it. He will say, yes, Karma Yoga is first. So poor Karma Yoga is always pre preliminary. But then, next comes Jnana Yoga. And the highest is Bhakti. Ultimately, by Karma Yoga, you will get a purified mind. Then by the practice of Jnana, you will realize that you are not body and mind. You are consciousness. You are the Chit Amsha of Brahman. In Vishishtadvaita Vedanta. Then by Bhakti, you are the Chit Amsha of Brahman. And with Bhakti towards Brahman, Bhakti towards Narayana, you will attain Moksha by the grace of Narayana. And that Moksha is you go to Vaikuntha and live in the presence of Narayana. And there are various kinds of Moksha. There are, and all the other Vedanta schools, the, the Bhakti schools of Vedanta, they are variations of this. They all give primacy to Bhakti, ultimately. And there are further subdivisions of Bhakti in each of them. There are some, like for example, the Chaitanya school, the Gaudiya Vaishnava school, uh, which would say that you need not bother so much about meditation. In fact, in Vishishtadvaita itself, I was uh, interested to know one great scholar, um, Lakshmi Tathacharya. He said that the meditation side is not developed at all in Vishishtadvaita. In Vishishtadvaita, there is ritual, there is, um, there is uh, upasana, detailed upasana is there, and there is jnana and bhakti. Bhakti is highly developed. There's a theology of bhakti. But the actual Patanjali type of meditation, that is not stressed. That's maybe one thing which has sort of been, uh, which has withered away. If you come to Chaitanya school of uh, Vaishnavism, the Bengal, Gaudiya Vaishnava school, their bhakti is primary. In fact, they will say that you need not bother so much about karma yoga. You need not bother about Patanjali yoga. Um, you need not bother at all much about jnana yoga at all. You just take a bhakti of Krishna and all those other things, purity of mind, concentration of mind, removal of ignorance, whatever is necessary, all of those things will come because of bhakti. By bhakti alone they will come. And it's not wrong at all. So, my point here is, if you go to the other schools of Vedanta, they will not accept this. What am I doing here? I'm giving you, first of all, the basic Advaitic uh, paradigm. This is, this is it. Next, I am disturbing the paradigm, mixing it up by bringing in Swami Vivekananda. Then I am showing why Swami Vivekananda, now I am going on to show why Swami Vivekananda has done that. So note that um, Raman, this, this paradigm is what Shankara agrees with, with Shankara's paradigm. And if you want to read the Bhashyas and understand Shankara's commentaries, this is very important. Otherwise, it will, it will not make sense. This is how Shankara has understood uh, Upanishads and Gita and all. Um, but Ramanuja will not agree with it. 
Madhvacharya will not agree, or Vallabhacharya will not agree with it, Nimbarkacharya will not agree with it, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu will not agree with it, or their followers will not agree with it. Uh, I heard a great uh, Advaita teacher, so without naming Swami Vivekananda, of course, but sort of criticizing. There are people who say you can attain moksha by any of these paths, and these paths you can take up one uh, or more than this and attain uh, moksha. No, 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 it is not possible. How, how is it possible? It's illogical. Only by removing ignorance, one can attain moksha. So, jnana removes ignorance. Only jnana yoga will give you moksha. But yes, the other yogas are useful. How are they useful? In this way. So, it is not like four yogas are there and they are all paths to moksha. No. So, that was an indirect or maybe almost direct criticism of Swami Vivekananda. But the thing is, if you and the, that Acharya who taught this is coming from a very, very good, very authentic uh, Shankara Vedanta lineage. But the price of holding on to that is you are indirectly implying that all the others are wrong, that Ramanuja is wrong and um, you know Nimbarka or Madhvacharya and all their other followers are wrong. Is it really true that all of them are, are wrong? And uh, is, it, is it possible that, uh, how is it possible that in all those traditions, clearly great saints have come over the last thousand years? Uh, you'll have to say that they did not attain moksha. They followed a wrong path. Not at all. So here comes what Swami Vivekananda is doing. He's working out Sri Ramakrishna's synthetic vision, a very broad vision of spirituality. That from Sri Ramakrishna's perspective or Swami Vivekananda's perspective, this paradigm, this, this table which you're seeing here is perfectly all right. 100%. A plus. No problem at all. If you follow this much only, you will get enlightenment. Clear. But it does not mean the others are wrong. Those others also will lead you to uh, enlightenment and moksha. See, they are consistent from their metaphysics. This is consistent only if you accept the Advaita metaphysics. The Advaita metaphysics is, you are already Brahman, problem is ignorance. Once you accept that, uh, then the rest follows very easily, logically. If problem is ignorance, solution is knowledge. If solution is knowledge, all the other, then Jnana Yoga is the way. If Jnana Yoga is the way, then the other Yogas are helpful, but not the way, not the final, um, which will give you moksha. But this is not the metaphysics of Ramanuja. Ramanuja, you are not Brahman. You are a part of Brahman. So you have a relation to the whole. You have a relation of Jivatma to Paramatma. And that relation can only be Bhakti. Therefore, bhakti is the final thing. And similarly, another kind of metaphysics is Madhvacharya's metaphysics. So, a different hierarchy will be set up. What Swami Vivekananda says, all those hierarchies will work. They will all work. Bhakti will work. Jnana will work. If you take up something like Patanjali Yoga, just the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, at no place Patanjali will say, um, I am sort of halfway. First you do karma yoga, then you come to me and then after that I will promote you to jnana yoga, go to Shankara. No. Patanjali claims I will give you kaivalya. Follow my method, I will give you kaivalya. So Swami Vivekananda is actually pretty, um, he is keeping it strictly to the, uh, to the claims of the founders of the systems. Each of them claimed that my path is a path to the uh, highest. And um, he is also true to the originals. That means if you see the Upanishads themselves or the Gita, they are 
they are not they are not strictly setting out this 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 paradigm this is a systematization which you do once you have a philosophy a darshana a particular system will come up so this is what has happened all right i will leave it at that um so from swami vivekananda's perspective this method uh, which what you are seeing here and which i follow also which i will uh, which is what i am talking about when i talk about um, what is going to come in the next few verses so i'm vivekan has no uh, objection to this at all uh, but that you have to see the in a larger context is there anything else i want to say no good now let's get into the verses so when i analyze this it's easier for me to stick to one paradigm so this is the paradigm i will stick to um but keep the larger context in mind in the background of your mind now fifth chapter panchamadhyay arjuna vacha sanyasam karmanam krishna punar yogam cha samsasi yat shreya etayor ekam tanme bruhi sunishchitam arjuna said O Krishna, you teach renunciation of actions and again action. Tell me decisively that one of the two which is good for me. Okay, what is Arjuna asking here? The yogas which we just saw, from an Advaitic perspective, um, they are all necessary. Did you notice that um, karma yoga will has a specific purpose? it removes our ignorance uh, it removes our impurities uh, raja yoga or upasana has a specific purpose it removes our distractions and then gyana yoga has a specific purpose it gives rise to knowledge which removes our ignorance and then we realize that we are brahman which is moksha now if that is so you cannot ask there which one should i practice See, I'm discussing what Arjuna is going to, is asking. What is the nature of his question? Tell me which is best: Karma Yoga is best or Gyan Yoga is best? But that question is you can now see it is not a logical question. It's not a reasonable question. It's like suppose I want to go to India. Um, I ask you, how do I go? Said so, Swami, take a cab from here to Newark Airport and then take a flight from there to Mumbai or Delhi. I, if I ask you, no, tell me one. You're telling me two things. should i take a flight or should i take a cab this is why we have to do both both the cab will take you for one part of the journey and the plane cannot do that and plane will take you for another part of the journey the cab cannot do that both are necessary similarly here karma yoga and also raja yoga and also um, gyana yoga all are necessary one will give you purity of mind one will specializes in concentration one will give you knowledge enlightenment man may ask so why not after all if i'm looking for enlightenment and moksha why not straight jump to gyana yoga it is like saying why not straight take the plane why just bother with the cab no that will not work uh, so we have to start where we are i have to start i am in manhattan i need to get to the airport i have got impurity of mind i need purity of mind gyana yoga will not work you just feel sleepy in vedanta class or <laughs> get bored so Uh, or we may be very interested in vedanta we may understand everything but we will say things like i understand vedanta but so that but is because of the lack of 
previous preparation. Now, um, however, however, Arjuna's question has a meaning. This question, tell me one of the two. See, this Jnana Yoga and, and um, uh, Karma Yoga are tied up with another thing, with Grihastha and Sannyasa. So this is an issue which is bothering Arjuna. Remember, what he is, he is engaged with, a problem that he is going to fight this war or not fight this war. And Krishna has now told him about uh, Vedanta, Moksha and the possibility of Sannyasa. So now he's thinking, if I have to do Jnana Yoga and there's the possibility of Sannyasa by do, taking Sannyasa, becoming a monk, giving up my householder responsibilities, including responsibility of fighting this war, Maybe I can become enlightened. So why should I have to? Why do I have to go through this? Here is an intelligent question. It is a real question actually, because here um, our um, scriptures, Vedanta, actually gives you an option. So the four ashramas, and notice the very beautiful use of the word ashram. Ashram is a place for spiritual practice. So Grihastha is also an ashram. It's a place for spiritual practice, just like Vedanta society is an ashrama. Um, and uh, sannyasa is an ashrama. The monastic life is an ashrama. Householder life is also an ashrama. The whole point was to use these stations of life for spiritual practice to become enlightened. Here is Arjuna's question. That um, it seems to me that one can legitimately, if one is seeking enlightenment, one can stop. Why should I engage myself in... Um, you know, worldly duties. Why should I lead a householder life? I understand. If I lead a householder life, if I'm, if I'm a warrior, a prince, a general of the army, then I understand it follows my duty is to fight this war. But suppose you're telling me it is, it is possible to become a monk and become enlightened. So why don't I do that? And that's a genuine question. Distinguish between the two questions. Should I do karma yoga or jnana yoga? Now we realize it's not a real question. You have to do both. But should I continue as a warrior, as a married man and, and fight this battle or in general fight the battle of life? Or should I give up all of that and go away to the mountains or to you know, an ashrama and uh, become a monk and then practice uh, my sadhana and become enlightened? After all, if the goal is enlightenment, why bother with all this? You know, husband, wife, children, bank, job, insurance, and so many problems. Why? Just become a monk. So, what, do, what does Vedanta say about it? Some religions, Hinduism gives all these. Hinduism is always a very broad spectrum, so it includes all of these. It includes the possibility of householder life and spirituality, includes the possibility of monastic life, giving up householder life and specialized spiritual life called monastic life and becoming enlightened. Both are perfectly fine in Hinduism. There are religions which um, overemphasize monastic life. And there are religions which do not permit monastic life. So for example, uh, Buddhism, especially the early Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, uh, the Hinayana, Hinayana is not a good term, it's a derogatory term, it's Theravada Buddhism. Um, then Jainism, these are uh, heavily monastic uh, paths. So in Theravada Buddhism, for example, uh, to, be, to get Nirvana in the path taught by Buddha, it is strongly recommended that you become a monk 
bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni, sannyasi or sannyasini, and give up householder life. Householder life can only prepare you at best. Next life, you are fit to be a monk, then you will become, you will get nirvana. You can practice the ashtanga marga to the full. You cannot do it if you are involved in society, but if you give up and become a monk or a nun, then. So always monasticism is praised above um, householder life. The whole thing was uh, much more, you know, toned down when the Mahayana developed. I was talking to a professor at Harvard last year. So why do you think the Mahayana suddenly developed? So from an academic perspective, uh, you know, there is a whole mythology of how there's a hidden teachings of Buddha were revealed and the Pragya Paramita Sutras were revealed. Uh, Nagarjuna, for example, he gets the knowledge from the Nagas and so on and so forth. And this was the highest teaching of the Buddha, which was hidden and only waiting for Buddhism to develop to that point where the next level of teachings could be given. This is the, the story. But of course, academicians are going to have none of that. So they are saying that it's obvious, the professor told me, just think about it. You have large monastic communities. Who's going to pay for it? Householders are going to pay for it. Who's going to give them, build the monasteries and give them food and give them clothes, give them bhiksha? It's householders. And at one point, you have to accommodate the householders. You can't keep denying that you will, you will not get nirvana. You can, you're only there to uh, give bhiksha to me. No, spirituality, full, the highest spirituality must be available to the householder. And therefore, you find Mahayana developing. But the original Buddhism strongly emphasized this. In the Jainism also, you see the same movement. Uh, Jainism is also very austere, very monastic. Uh, the Digambara Jains. So Digambara Jains say that without being a monk, one cannot get um, Nirvana or, or in their terms, Kaivalya, the Kevala, the Kevalin state one cannot attain. And that too, a very severe monastic life for lifetimes is necessary. And um, a more moderate form was the Shvetambara, the white clothes. So the sky clad, that means you have to remain naked. That is the uh, very austere Digambara um, you know, kind of monasticism. Both are still there right now. But that also praised. In Jainism, monasticism is highly praised. So it's always a great celebration and you know, and highly praised if some young person, man or woman, becomes a monk or a nun. On the other hand, uh, in religions like Sikhism, for example, Islam or Judaism, um, monasticism is not encouraged. In fact, there are no clear monastic orders. There are always fakirs or you know mystics or ascetics, but um, monasticism is a major tradition of the religion, not allowed in Sikhism, not allowed in Judaism, uh, not allowed in Islam. As I said, don't immediately talk about you know, like the Sufis or the Fakirs. Uh, so they are, they are like, uh, what do you call, freelancers. And they are not part of an organized monasticism. So there, it is a householder religion. It's, you're, you're commanded to marry and be part of society and raise a family and be religion and, uh, religious and spiritual. Um, in Christianity and Hinduism, both are there. In Catholic Christianity, for example, uh, monasticism was there. There are monasteries, monks and nuns from the very beginning, from Christ's time, from the apostles who were all monks, Christ and all, and apostles were all monks. Um, and of course, a very strong householder tradition is there. 
noticed that it, Protestantism, in one sense, was a reaction against this. They wiped out the monastic part of it in in the Protestant Revolution. Um, so what was it trying to say? Yes. So in Hinduism, you have these two broad approaches. If you go back to the Upanishads and Shankaracharya, who is very pro-monastic himself because he's a monk and his audience is mostly Vedantic monks, but he makes it very clear. Upanishads, Jabal Upanishad, for example, what is the Hindu approach to this? It says that there are four stations of life, four ashramas, four places for spiritual development. Brahmacharya, the student life before you get married. Then that's an ashrama. Then there is Grihastha, the householder, once you get married. And then there is Vanaprastha. Uh, after your children are grown up and gone, uh, you retire and focus on spiritual life. That is a retired kind of, um, you know, not monastic, but a spiritual life dedicated to um, study, contemplation and all. And finally, Sannyasa. For all, for all. Not compulsory, but it is open for all. Uh, you, you can finally be uh, alone and only dedicated to enlightenment and seeking moksha. So four stages, four ashramas. Brahmacharya, um, Grihastha, uh, sanya, uh, Vanaprastha and Sannyasa. Four. The student, the householder, the forest dweller and the monk. Then the Upanishad says something interesting. First it says, having been a Brahmachari, become a Grihastha. Having been a Grihastha, become a, a forest dweller. Having been a forest dweller, become a monk. This is how your life should progress. And then it goes on to say a very interesting thing. Um, Brahmacharyadva, Grihatva, Vanatva, Yadareva Virajit, Tadareva Pravrajit. If you are ready, if you want moksha and nothing else in life, if you are ready for that, then you can become a monk. It's an interesting addition. You can become a monk from the student life directly, from the householder life directly, or from the forest dweller life. So this is added in the uh, Jabal Upanishad, which is what gives us permission. So all these people who become sannyasis or sannyasinis without going through Grihastha life, uh, how is this permitted in Hinduism? This is permitted because of that, that rule. Since the goal is enlightenment, if you think you are ready, for monastic life, one needs a certain readiness. Which is better? It depends. It depends on one's readiness. What one wants in life, one's station in life, and also ultimately on one's own karma. Um, what one ends up is not so much really a choice as um, you know, one's prarabdha karma. Um, there are advantages in householder life. There are advantages in monastic life. Sri Ramakrishna, for example, when the householder devotees would say that, should we give up uh, householder life? He said, no, no, why should you give up? He says, being in householder life and trying to worship God is like fighting from inside a fort. Uh, if you're a monk, who's going to feed you? You're going to <laughs> wander here and then half of your energy will be spent in being a beggar. So you are in householder life. There is security. Uh, you have money in the bank. You have a husband and a wife and children and grandchildren to look after you, hopefully. And uh, uh, you have insurance and so, so stuff like that. And so you have a certain place in society. You have things to do in life, um, a certain role to play in life. And that helps one to, one to develop. In contrast, what is monastic life basically? 
you give up. Monastic life literally means giving up or renouncing. Renouncing what? Renouncing all relations. So a monk does not have husband, wife, does not have father, mother, children, um, relatives, friends, enemies. They are all one to a, a monk. A special place may be given to guru, the, the teacher, but otherwise everybody is one to you. Uh, does not have possessions. You can't have gadgets or money or stuff like that, strictly speaking. And does not have um, obligations, duties and obligations. Neither religious, ritualistic, which was a big thing in, in ancient India. You had so many things. Every day you had some rituals to perform. Nothing. Nor do you have material obligations to family, to community or to society. Okay. That leaves you totally free for one thing and one thing only is to seek enlightenment and be and get enlightenment and the society it's amazing that a society valued it so much it would privilege this and support a group of people to do this and encourage people to do this uh, at, at least at the end of their lives or if you wanted you would be it would be very prestigious very good everybody would be happy to help you to do that if you wanted it early but the danger here is that unless one is prepared for this if you let go, it sounds great. That's why Arjun is asking, let me do that then. I don't want to fight this battle. I don't want to have enemies and friends and all of that. I just want to become enlightened and sthita pragya, like you told me in second chapter. The danger is, and I've seen this again and again in, in the mountains and other places, moment you're let out of this kind of a framework of householder life, of social obligations, you begin to see the value of that. That is a framework which imposes a discipline and structure on your life. If the mind is not ready to sincerely pursue a life of one-pointed spiritual practice, then the mind will simply relapse back into tamas. You end up being a beggar, a vagabond, a good-for-nothing. Or you enter politics or do something like that. You know, just to, uh, occupy your time. So that, that's what happens. It's not all that easy. That's why in our, um, okay, all right, let me just go ahead and see what Krishna says. So look at the verse here. What Arjuna is asking is, Sanyasam karmanam krishna punar yogam chashansasi. You are talking, you are praising the giving up of activities, monastic life, give up all secular and religious rituals associated with householder life. By the way, one more point. Hinduism recognizes that householder life is the basis of society. Who pays for students? The college and at least in India, the parents pay for everything until, until you go. One student was, uh, was one, one Indian uh, uh, you know, visitor here was saying that, you know, Swami, when we are growing up in India, we had this feeling by going to college, you're doing your parents a favor. It's only here that I realize that uh, it's, it's the parents who are doing you a favor if they're financing your college and education. In India, it's like if you study and work hard, you are doing a great favor to the parents. Uh, so it's the householders who, who finance the, the student. It's the householders who take care of the, you know, the retirement homes and all of that, or, or the monies from your householder earnings. So the, the forest dwellers are also provided by the householders and the monks are entirely provided for by the householders. So the householder uh, is the basis of society. 
Now, sannyasam karmanam Krishna, you are talking about renunciation of activities, renunciation of duties and obligations, monkhood. Punar yogam sashamsasi. But you also have talked about karma yoga, doing your duties wherever you are in householder life, spiritualizing that. Both you have talked about. Yat shreya, ekam. Of these two, what is good for me? What will take me to enlightenment? Tan me bruhi sunishchitam. Tell me one definitely. So one of them, you, you please prescribe. Should I stay like this or should I become a monk? And even the question of becoming a monk, you know, we all know this from monastic life. In our monastery, it's just before the exams, a lot of young people want to become monks. It's because um, they are fine at the rest of the year, but when the exams are near, um, I don't like all this. I want to realize God. And can I join the monastery? And we say, of course you can. But just, you have to graduate. We need a graduation certificate from you before you let you into the monastery. And they all disappear. They never come back again. So it's just the crisis. People want to avoid that. Arjuna also wants to avoid it. He was perfectly fine with what he was doing till now. But uh, only in this crisis, he doesn't like it anymore. Uh, so that's one problem. But now he is asking, tell me one of these two, which will lead me to enlightenment. He, here it says, what is good for me? Tell me one. But um, basically, what is good? Shreya means enlightenment. It is Upanishadic language. Shreya and Preya. Shreya means the highest goal. Literally in Sanskrit, Shreya means that which is good. Preya means that which is pleasant. The good and the pleasant are unfortunately rarely the same thing. And they tend to differ. The good takes you towards your goal. Um, the goals of human life and ultimately the goal of enlightenment. The pleasant usually makes us sink back into the mud of worldliness. So Shreya here means uh, this goal you're talking about, enlightenment. Uh, I agree it's a great thing. I want to attain that. So this is my question. All this in order to point out that this question can be interpreted in two ways. One way is, should I do Jnana Yoga or Karma Yoga? Tell me one. That is easy to answer. Answer is both. Because as you saw, the, the table, Karma Yoga, Upasana, Jnana Yoga, all are necessary. You have to. Do I take a cab or an aeroplane? Both. It's very easy to answer. There's no option there. Um, but the other one is a genuine question. Should I become a monk or remain as a householder? So this is the question. A question is there only when there is a genuine choice. Before I go to the answer, already there are questions about the question, I think. There is activity in the chat. Let me take a look. Prabir Babu is saying, definition of moksha is different between Advaita and Vishishta Advaita. Correct. Um, so... The idea of moksha, liberation. So liberation is a, is a general term. Liberation, what liberation from what? Liberation from the cycle of birth and death. Liberation from uh, sorrow. In both cases, in Advaita, Vishishta Advaita, the conditions are satisfied. If you realize you are Brahman, you realize that you are forever beyond birth and death. You never were in the cycle of birth and death. If you are in a Vishishta Advaitic or Dvaitic paradigm, you go to 
Vaikuntha, the abode of Vishnu, and stay there eternally. So you are liberated from the cycle of birth and death. So both, both are good definitions. So both satisfy the criteria of moksha, freedom. But the nature of freedom is different. In one, you are this impersonal, infinite, absolute. In the other, you are in an eternal, loving relationship you know, uh, with God. The difference between becoming sugar and eating sugar. Sri Ramakrishna put it that way. Being sugar and eating sugar. Um, Sri Ramakrishna's attitude, why would you then say they're the same thing? They're the same thing ultimately because you are in contact with the same reality. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna said, if you, if you eat a cookie, in Bengali I think he said pite. So if you're eating a cookie, you, if you eat it this way or you eat it this way, it tastes sweet. So if you realize yourself as an impersonal absolute or you are in divine communion with, with God, with the God of religion, it works either way and you are free of samsara. So that much is all that is meant here. Rama is saying, Swamiji, you mentioned that bhakti is not spoken much in the Vedas directly. It's interesting to note that except Advaita school or other Vedanta schools talk about bhakti as the primary path. It is true. It is true. Um, if you see... So, so that's why, very interestingly, all the other Vedanta schools, they give lip service to the Upanishads being the fundamental texts of Vedanta. But from Vishishtadvaita onwards, you will see the growing importance of Bhagavad Gita. You will see the growing importance of the Bhagavatam. You will see the growing importance of the Vishnu Purana. So the Puranas and the Bhagavatam and the Gita, which talk extensively about God and devotion to God, those things become central. Although they will always give a check that we accept the Upanishads as the final authority. Also, just as an observation, the most ancient philosophies in India, they're all philosophies of knowledge. Have you noticed that? Whether it is Nyaya or Vaisheshika or Sankhya or Yoga or um, um, Vedanta, I mean the Advaita Vedanta path, or Buddhism or Jainism, very ancient. And they all belong to more or less the same, almost the same period. Uh, of development and in the earliest form, the sutra literature. And there the emphasis is solely on knowledge. What is knowledge again is very different from different philosophies, but it's not on devotion to a deity. Nowhere, none of them. Again, it's a very general and sweeping statement I'm making. Girish is saying the saint who practices upasana and karma yoga on a faster track to moksha than the sinner who practices only jnana yoga. Uh, If you by saint and sinner, you mean uh, one of purified mind and one of mind not purified, it is true. Uh, without purified mind, I have mastered Vedanta, read all the books, uh, I have completed all the, you know, in university language, I've done all the readings and assignments, but I have not purified my mind. And then the, the, it's not fast track at all. It's just going to take that much longer. As Vivekananda put it, an ounce of practice is worth 20 tons of tall talk. Um, Vishwanathan is saying in the three cross three matrix, after developing a concentrated mind, when the sadhaka comes to jnana yoga, is the assumption that now they have the cap capability to apply their mind better? Yes, 
In other words, a student becomes good at regular meditation, and then they also practice Vedantic meditation, Shravan, Manan, Nidityasan. First of all, the ability to absorb these teachings increases with spiritual practice. These teachings means teachings of non-duality. Otherwise, one will sort of one will begin to feel frustrated after some time. If one jumps straight to non-duality, to the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutras and you know Drigdrishya Viveka and Aparokshanubhuti, it's the Mandukya Karika. So directly, it's very satisfying. Intellectually, it's very satisfying. But um, when confronted with actual problems in one's life, then it becomes a struggle. It becomes a struggle to dismiss those problems as the Upanishads would, as Mandukya would want you to do. Whereas with sufficient preparation, concentration of mind, purification of mind, uh, dispassion for the world, it becomes much easier to actualize those teachings. And student becomes good at regular meditation, Vedantic meditation. Regular meditation, Vedantic meditation, these are two different things. Very interesting topic. I will not enter into it now. But those who have heard the Aparokshanubhuti series, at the end, 15 techniques of Vedantic meditation are talked about by Shankaracharya. And there he takes, um, you know, like to distinguish between what does it mean in regular meditation, by regular I mean yogic meditation, and what does it mean in Vedantic meditation, those terms. So the distinctions have been made. I have done that in my talks on Aparokshanubhuti. You will see uh, all the aspects of or stages of yogic meditation, what it means in regular yogic meditation, and what it means in Advaitic meditation. That distinction I've drawn at, at length there. Alpana Chatterjee says, if the mind is not focused on a particular thought, is thoughtless, trouble focusing? Yes. Vikshipta mind. The, the focused mind will be able to focus on whatever you want it to focus on, withdraw, and then focus on the next thing. It will be under your control. Srinivas says, Swami Vivekananda says, Dvaita, Vishishta Dvaita, Dvaita, three stages of one single development. That's also a unique contribution of Swami Vivekananda. They, if you look at the textbooks of Indian philosophy, so they all seem like competing systems. Vishishta, Dvaita, Dvaita, the same texts and differing interpretations and a thousand years of dialectics, mostly dualistic attacks on non-dualism. That's what you see. That's good. That led to a refinement of thought. If your ideas are being criticized, attacked, um, it only helps you to rethink and clarify those ideas. But also, as Swami Vivekananda said, there are phases in the development of one way of thinking. Um, there's the same thing can be grasped dualistically, the same thing can be understood um, non-dualistically. It is like a Hanuman, that I, I like that so much when Sri Ramakrishna approved of it. You know, he says, you know, Hanuman was asked by Ramachandra, what do you think of me? Ramachandra, his Lord says, what do you think of me? And Hanuman replies, as this body, you know, as Hanuman, you are the Lord, I am thy servant. And Deha Buddhya Dasoham, as a jiva, sentient being, you are the whole, I am your part. Tadangshakam, jiva buddhya tadangshaka. But as Atman, as pure consciousness, you and I are one reality. Okay? But then, finally, finally, this three. <laughs> he says, Itime nishchitamati. This is my final conclusion. Which one? 
all three but depending on the perspective body body centered this individual being which i am right now god exists i am the servant of the lord go deeper i am a sentient being in this body um, coming going through lifetime after lifetime i am a part of an organic spiritual whole vishishta dvaita the first one is dvaita twad angshaka amsha amshi relationship whole and part relationship that is vishishta dvaita and from the absolute perspective as pure being as pure consciousness god and i are one reality their god is not god i am not uh, an individual as meister eckhart the great uh, german theologian who is very non dualistic catholic theologian he says the ground of god and the ground of my soul are one and the same it's just mahavakya the same thing as tatvamasi that thou art um in fact one book i was reading recently is a rare book by you've heard of copplestone father copplestone copplestone was a jesuit priest he has written this i think 12 volume history of western philosophy um so nobody much reads those things now but he was a jesuit priest at the end of his life he delivered the templeton lectures and um, the lectures were the philosophy of one you know and there he talks about advaita vedanta he says late in life i came across teachings of of india and so i ventured beyond western philosophy so he brings in advaitic teachings and he looks at it in buddhism in islam in christianity and in western philosophy um so yes that's the final and swami vivekananda says this is the stages of development still i mean little bit if you are going to be critical about this you will say that still privileges advaita vedanta because a dualist a committed follower of madhvacharya for example will not be happy with this kind of interpretation that means if it's a development then i am at the bottom of that scale and then higher is qualified monism and the highest is advaita vedanta who wants to be at the bottom of the scale i remember we asked once swami bhuteshananda ji that isn't it that swami vivekananda said there are stages three stages of one single development like a like the rungs of a ladder dualistic thought qualified monistic and then absolutistic that means advaita vedanta and his answer in his typical drawl you know he was i think about 95 or 96 years at that time and he would speak slowly with a drawl he said yes but remember a ladder can be reversed so <laughs> your non dualistic advaita vedanta becomes the lowest rung of the ladder and dualistic devotion becomes the highest the ladder can be reversed conceptually and that's actually what the um gaudiya vaishnavas do the uh, followers of chaitanya they put advaita at the lowest it's sinners who become non dualistic the saintly become devotees of krishna <laughs> okay so that we know where we stand nidjar is asking swami ji i can assume we practice all three methods in parallel yes we practice all three methods absolutely even for shankara advaitins who say this is the way first karma yoga then upasana and then advaita if you look at their lives from the very beginning do they spend 30 years doing karma yoga sweeping the ashram and then next 20 years repeating the gayatri mantra and then the final you know like 30 years listening to the upanishad not at all from the very beginning there is karma yoga there is ritualism and upasana and there is the study of the 
Vedanta, Shravan, Manan, Nididhyasa. So they all go parallelly, even for the strictest non-dualist, they all go parallelly. Punita says, Buddha left everything behind to gain moksha. But he was likely not confused like Arjuna. Notice, we will see now, next. But notice one thing about the life of the Buddha. He left everything, became a monk, and he strongly recommended monastic life afterwards. But notice in the first, I think, eight years or ten years of his life, he went through intense practices. Chitta Shuddhi, purity of mind. One monk, rather uncharitably, he quipped that the kind of life he had led before becoming a monk. So he needed to go through all that austerity and suffering to cleanse his mind of all those samskaras, which he had gathered as, as a prince. So he went through intense, very hard austerities and seeking, meditation and physical austerities. So that gave him the necessary preparation for that final breakthrough. Then this is a good point to, this is a good good time to introduce what I wanted to say. Uh, It will come later on actually. Even in monastic life, that is why he says, I mean, even in monastic life, Krishna will point out in the next few, oh, we have already run out of time. Even in monastic life, it is understood that uh, preparation may not be there. Necessary preparation for monastic life may not be there. So, for example, in our order, and I know many others, the moment somebody, a young person becomes a monk, they're thrown into a lot of responsibilities. And we are all, it's a common complaint among the newcomers. We are not getting time for meditation. We are not getting time for study. Uh, So much work is being given to us on purpose. You're kept busy from morning to evening. You thought you you ran away from uh, householder life. I remember when I joined three days, Later, after I joined, um, a senior monk said, look, there is a hostel. There are 40 kids there. Go and look after them. I thought if I had become a householder and married, I would have one or two kids. Now there are 40 kids to look after. You cannot run away from responsibilities. So and that, that load, I used to work in the office. I used to work in the kitchen. I used to work in the temple. I used to work in this classroom. I used to look after a hostel. And on top of that meditation and uh, puja and uh, scriptural study uh, and a really hard life. In those days, it was, uh, there wasn't even a fan in my room. It was really hot and uh, there's a a purpose to it. That rounds out the personality, that develops a certain resilience and strength, that struggle. What, What a householder who is trying to lead an ethical, moral life uh, in, uh, in society, a married life with children and responsibilities and struggling with society, um, you know, and trying to be spiritual in that. The same kind of development is necessary even in the Rasha. So that's why so much responsibility is put. One monk, he told me, uh, when he joined, he was in Narendrapur Ramakrishna Mission, which is an educational complex. He was a young, I mean, he was a novice. And he the same complaint. I have so much work, I don't have time for meditation. He wrote to Swami Atmastanandaji, who later became the president of the order. I'm working 12 hours a day. And he was grumbling, basically, it was a complaint. 12 or 14 hours a day. I have no time, energy left over at the end of the day for any kind of... What is this? What's going on here? I'm just working hard. School. And Swami Atmastanandaji wrote back one <laughs> line. 
I am so happy to know that you are using this opportunity to do the Lord's work, to do, do the work of Thakur, Sri Ramakrishna's work for 14 hours a day. You are blessed. <laughs> so that monk says, now I, I completely agree with him now. I was furious when I got that letter earlier. I thought, what's this? But, but that's true. All the monks who go through that phase, first 5, 10, 15 years, 10 years at least, they agree it's absolutely necessary. I will not take the other questions now. We have run out of time. Um, I will, uh, please remember your questions. We will see that next time. I'll end with one experience I had myself is that um, when the first time I left the monastery after taking the vows of monasticism, I went off to the mountains. I thought enough with schools and colleges and monastic um, community and routine. I want to be like those traditional monks, you know, sit in a cave or a hut in the, at least 10,000 feet high in the mountains and meditate. And I did that. And I enjoyed it. And I really made uh, progress. And one of the times when there was really a burst of progress. Now a question came to my mind. This is great. I have no obligations at all. I just go a couple of times to beg for my food and in this extraordinary atmosphere, you know, high up in the mountains, spectacular beauty, complete solitude. You are left to your own devices. Why didn't I do this earlier? Why did I spend 10 years in an ashram? Um, and, you know, being engaged with ashram duties. And immediately the answer came to me. The only reason I'm able to enjoy this and derive benefit from it and progress spiritually is because I spent those 10 years in training. So the training, basically this is what Krishna is going to tell him. That uh, remain in the householder life. Do what you're supposed to do. And that will uh, give you the training, the preparation for, for enlightenment. Uh, you can do it in monastic life, but it's much better to do it in householder life. That's what Krishna is going to tell him. Uh, even if you enter monastic life, like I did, you will still be put through the grind uh, to prepare yourself. And I saw in the Himalayas, people who have monks who have not gone through the grind, who were straight away, you know, removed all restrictions removed. Basically, it doesn't work. They're very sad stories. It's, it's a very risky maneuver. All right. Oh, Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu I'm sorry I could not go through all of the comments. Rama and Krishna's gurus were householders. Rama Krishna's gurus were sannyasins. Is this a tide of the Kali Yoga? Not necessarily. One of Sri Ramakrishna's guru was uh, householder, the first one he got Mantra Diksha from. We don't know much about him. And uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, the teacher Krishna is a householder. The student Arjuna is a householder. The one who has comp you know, compiled and written the whole thing, Vyasa, the, the sage, is a householder. In fact, in the entire Bhagavad Gita, monastic spiritual masters are basically a sideshow. They are there, but they are just like hermits and they are marginal actually both in the Ramayana and in the Mahabharata. Okay. 